Trot a guana guana dick a dick a blab Sujan made a love when a good good lie Chagon zoo very long 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 time Dung the water bad Trunge water jack She won't water chit water each a dope Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Adrian Thors, who you know is Tricky. He's a child of Bristol's sound system culture and his fusions of post-punk, hip-hop and electronica have been matched by a dynamic attitude on everything from class and cultural divisions to gender politics. After releasing one of Trip Hop's defining statements with 1995's Max and Quay, Tricky has returned to his roots with a new project called Skilled Mechanics. In conversation with Christine Kikea, he keeps an eye train on family and history as he dissects the ups and downs of a remarkable career. As always, you can access our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. An exchange with Tricky is up next. So Tricky, first thing I wanted to ask you about your debut album, Maxine Quay. 20th anniversary, and I was thinking that things like landmark anniversaries, they tend to lend themselves to things like nostalgia. How do you feel about that album now? as compared to 20 years ago? I don't think about it at all. You don't think about it at all? And it's being 20 years means nothing to me at all. Only reason I know it's 20 years is because you've said it and a couple of other people, it just doesn't interest me. Okay. So the significance of that period of time? Uh, there isn't. Had... It's gone. That's, that will never be again. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. That's like a dream of yesterday. You don't really have much consequence. You know, that's time past it never that time will never be again mm. it's great the things it's done for me mm. like it's given me a career in the music industry i've traveled all over the world i've met a lot of people through my travels but it doesn't really mean anything to me the only time i ever think about it is say if i hear something which i know sounds like it mm-hmm. i quite like the fact that sometimes i hear a new band And I could tell they've taken from kind of my vibe, but they might not even know who I am because it's so many years have passed. Mm -hmm. Some people don't know where they're influenced from even. Mm. So I think that's quite funny, but I don't ever think about it. You know, I'm always thinking about my next record and um, after I mix something, I'm bored of an album anyway, so that it's over for me, any album. So the album I've just done now, I'm thinking about touring. The next time I hear it is when I'm on stage. Yeah. So would you say generally that's reflective of you as a person? Do you consider yourself to be a nostalgic person or are you somebody that just kind of is happy to leave the past in the past and just move forward? No, I don't think I'm nostalgic as such. But then, you know, like when it comes to family and stuff, Mm. you know, and um, I talked to a, a friend the other day I haven't talked to for many years and I've known him since I was a kid and we used to uh, like get into trouble with each other and travel together. It was like, um, his name was Whitley and he's actually, um, on the new album. I talk about him on the new album. Mm -hmm. 
he's got an amazing memory. He remembers things that I don't, you know. So it's like um, talking to him is is good, but not really. I'm not kind of um, one of these people who kind of um, get sad at Christmas, kind of thinking of the family and stuff, you know. I, I don't even celebrate Christmas. Nah. So I'm not really, I'm kind of a move forward person. Sure. You kind of touched on family and perhaps feeling nostalgic or sentimentality about your family. And I wanted to ask you about the Maxine Quay album particularly because your your mother is a figure who really looms large for that album and, and perhaps for the rest of your career as well, or rather the absence of her yeah, yeah. Um, is very apparent. So how have you moved through that absence of your mother with your music? Is it something that's still as present to you now as it was 20 years ago? Yeah, and it's kind of, I don't look at it as, as, it's almost not a sad thing. She's kind of given me everything. Mm. If you think, um, this guy wrote a really interesting thing when the album came out. I don't know subconsciously if it was that, but he kind of said in a way, because I didn't really know my mother. The first time I remember my mother is in a coffin because she used to keep the coffin at home, the glass coffin, open coffin. Mm -hmm. So um, he said, like, you know, I called the album that. So when I go into record shops, I can see my mum everywhere. <laughs> cool. Well, I don't know if that's subconsciously, mm -hmm. but um, it's not a sad thing. It's, it's a, a positive thing. Like she was a writer, right? She used to write poetry, but... In her times in where she was, it, is, it wasn't possible for, for her to have a career as a writer, mm -hmm. you know? She had two kids. Um, we come from a poor family. She had epilepsy. You know, she couldn't really drive a car because of epilepsy. And it just in those times, there was no, there was nothing there set up for her to be able to say, all right, I want to be a writer now. You know, she didn't go to the best school. Like me, I didn't go to the best school, but I, I had more opportunity than my mum. And it's almost like she give up her life so I can do mine. So it's kind of like um, she's always there because I didn't, I didn't really know her. Mm. I was always my mum's ghost to my grandmother. You know, she used to sit me on the floor when I was a kid and she'd watch me playing Billy Holiday music. This is where I first get my, my first music is I ever remember is Billy Holiday. And she used to play up Billy Holiday and she'd smoke a cigarette just watching me and say things like, well, you look like your mother. It's harder for her than it is for me. For uh, a woman to lose a child rather than a boy to lose his mother, I think it's much harder for my grandmother, especially if she's bringing up the boy who looks like his mum. Right. So every time she has to see me, she has to be reminded of her daughter and the daughter she lost. That must be very difficult. You know, I'm always hearing stories about my mother as well. My mum was the favourite, was the favourite girl. You know, she was kind of like, um, everybody loved her. That's why my family took care of me so good. So I suppose it's a big part of my life. Your experiences go with you, of you course. know, whether it's in music or art or writing, your, your experiences go with you, you know? Yeah. I thought it was interesting, though, that obviously the first album was named for your mother, um, but your most recent album was your name, like your, your actual name, which I, I just found to be interesting because I... If I think of you as an artist, I think of, in terms of sound quality, somebody who's quite obscured in a way. There's like a lot of dense layers. It's not always 100% apparent where you are in the music, which I think is part of its magical quality. But what was the idea behind presenting that album as you, as, as Adrian Thors? Max and Quay was the beginning, and I've come full circle now. I've gone through some... Um crazy periods when I was living in America. Some crazy stuff was happening. And um, some people said I wouldn't live that long, you know, the way I was behaving and stuff. 
just like it was crazy partying and I was a big mess mm-hmm. and now and I took five years off I didn't do any music and it's not like I took five years off five years just went without knowing it I did I think I did blowback and then nothing happened you know I was all right for money so I didn't need to do shows I didn't have to do anything so I just lived in LA and my life became partying then I did an album with Domino and I can remember the first time I did the uh, interview, the guy said to me, uh, it's five years since you've done an album. And I was like, wow, I, I just couldn't believe it. It kind of shocked me. And then I just thought, I don't want that to happen again. It's like um, a year, two years, two years at the most, I think, without putting music out, for me anyway. By the time I got to Adrian Falls and I got on my new deal, I'm more focused again. I'm more... Um, loving what I'm doing. I, I really love what I'm doing and I feel like I'm really lucky to be able to like... Um, last time I was in London, sometimes I'll come out of a studio at five, six o'clock in the morning and there's old men working on the street and stuff. Freezing cold. And I've just come out of a studio and I get picked up in a car. And, uh, I fly around the world. So it was just like Maxi Quay was the first chapter. Adrian Falls is the next chapter. Maxi Quay give birth to me as a baby boy I was called Adrian Falls and then the letter she left she said on the letter it's funny I feel a bit bad for my sister but my sister wasn't mentioned in the letter she left a letter to my auntie saying look after Adrian for some reason not that she didn't love my sister maybe she thought I needed more love are you younger no I'm I'm older as well that's the funny thing maybe she thought maybe it's because I was the only boy as well though you know and the first baby boy. So mm. it was just like a right time to call it that, you know. It was just a, uh, it just felt like a right time. Mm-hmm. I wanted to cycle back again, back towards Maxine Quay to ask you a little bit about the actual making of it because there's a couple of things that have continued to stand out to me. Obviously before that you were involved with The Wild Bunch and kind of connected um, with Massive Attack with your appearances on their first two albums. And I have always been curious about the kind of lyrics of yours which appeared on both albums. So like Karma Coma on Protection became Overcome and um, Eurochild became Hell is Around the Corner with the same lyrics, but the musical context is completely different. It has a completely different atmosphere and also the, the public enemy cover that you did, Black Steel, which I thought was brilliant to have this like inversion of having Martine singing the vocals but still from the perspective of a black man like I, I just love the way that you give the same lyrics different context so I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that with the Massive Attack stuff I thought those lyrics were wasted on the Massive Attack album not that the album wasn't good it just wasn't totally my thing there was like four, five of us in there you know and that's like different pieces of personalities some of the mixes I weren't happy with some of the things like um I didn't think certain things sounded right for me, not for them, but for me. And these lyrics, they were kind of like, um, they weren't ripped for Massive Attack. I wrote those not thinking of doing music even. I, I've, I've always written, you know? So when I did my stuff, they're my words and they're more personal on my album than they are on, and you can hear it, if you hear, um, yeah, you if you hear the Massive Attack mm. and then you hear it on mine, it makes more sense on mine. It's more personal. And these lyrics were really personal. And um, it's nothing, it's not Massive Tax fault. I should have maybe written something else for them, which was more 
to do with a group thing. So it was really personal to me. So by the time I met Martina, I knew she was the girl to sing these lyrics, you know? So basically that, that, that's all it was. It was like more of a personal thing for me. Um, Black Steel was like um, just one of my, I, I used to play that song over and over and over. Public Enemy, forget rap, forget hip hop. One of the best bands ever lived and forget putting Public Enemy into a hip hop label. And they, they changed the face of music. When I first heard Public Enemy, I was just like, what is this? The first album, I didn't like it. And then the second album, I loved it. And then I went back to the first album and I understood it. That's how genius they are. Mm -hmm. So with Black Steel, one of the reasons Martina doing it, everybody thinks it's because I was taking the male, putting into the, the female role. Maybe a little bit of that, but to be honest with you, the song is so good, I wanted other people to wear it who are not people who are into hip hop or rap. I thought the song is, the lyrics are so good that I know if Martina does it, it's gonna go to people who might not hear Public Enemy. Mm -hmm. We still do that song sometimes, like in Russia. And you know, you know the thing with the government there, the government is not easy. And you see these um, young white kids who weren't born when Max and Quay was done singing along to Public Enemy like a revolutionary song right. and it's just amazing so it's more because I, I just got so much respect for Public Enemy really to be mm. honest and stylistically that track kind of stands out from the rest of the album I think just because it does have that kind of heavy punk sound beneath it is that what you intended yeah 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 I've always started? I've always been into rock music yeah you know I was into the specials mm. and um and then hip-hop came I was more into the rock like T-Rex Mark Boland mm -hmm. And then I was just like, uh, become kind of like a b-boy. I was obsessed with hip hop, you mm -hmm. know. I've heard you speak about the specials in other interviews before. And I thought it was interesting that you said that kind of growing up in Bristol, that they kind of seem to represent you as somebody who comes from a mixed racial background. Yeah. Um, and also, like, say, for instance, like uh, if I was a Prince fan, I could listen to a Prince album but I can never want to be Prince. I can't do that. You know, I can't um, dance around in aisles. I can't sing in falsetto and stuff like that. He's a born musician. He's, he grew up as a musician, you know? I'm a street kid. It don't matter how much I would have liked Prince. It doesn't give me anything. It doesn't, I can't say, do you know what? I can change my life. I can do that. But when I first heard the specials, and like these are kids who were coming from the same place I come from, They've learned to play guitar, they've learned to play bass, they've learned to sing. Terry Orr is not a natural singer, mm -hmm. but he made it work. So when I first heard Terry Orr, I thought, I can do this now. Because I, I was in love with music, but there was always a divide between me and the music. But then when I first heard the specials, it's like, well, I can do this if Terry Orr can do it. And the things he was singing about, the stuff like I know, getting chased, going into town, getting into fights not feeling you belong anywhere and walking around council estates. I, I could totally relate to that. So with the specials, it, it kind of made me feel like I can do this. That's when I decided I wanted to be a musician when I heard the specials. Because mm -hmm. before that, anything, I used to listen to like old hip hop as well, like UTFO and all that. But I can't do that. I can't, I'm not American. I can't sound like an American. 
the specials kind of made me feel like this is what I'm going to do with my life. Yeah. Was it also because maybe they sounded British as well? Was yeah. And something to do with it. British and they lived the same lives I lived. Yeah. Our lives were mirrored. And I had the best of both worlds. My mum is half white. I grew up with her family. My grandmother's white. So I grew up in a white community, in a white ghetto. But my dad lived in a black ghetto. Mm. I didn't start seeing him until I was about 12 and then not for a while, 15. I go to clubs, reggae clubs, with like say Whitley for instance, and Whitley was from Northwest. He was a black guy in a white ghetto. And we'd go to a, a blues and there'd be no white people. And then we could go to the Top Cat, which was just Northwest Arcliffe. We were the only black people in there. And we didn't even, I, you know, I, when I was younger, I've, I've been in clubs when I was younger and I've had a friend say to me, you're the only black guy in there. And I've never even noticed it. And like, I wouldn't notice it being in the black club. So I kind of um, been lucky. You know, I've had friends who are black and friends who are white and they're racist, mm -hmm. but they just don't know it. You know, like, uh, oh, he's all right for a black guy or white guys, blah, 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 blah. So sometimes I was in the middle. And then when I seen the specials, I realized, ah, this is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. You know, I come up through the skinhead thing as well, which was quite racist thing. Sure. You know, so yeah. um, we used to go to clubs in Bristol and stuff. And it was like uh, quite a bit of racism. Bristol's quite... A, could be quite a racist place. Mm -hmm. So um, with the specials, it kind of um, broadened my horizons, you know, and it gave me a voice. Mm. Moving a bit further forward to when you fell in with, with the Wild Bunch, did it feel at that time that the division socially or even musically had moved beyond racial barriers or borders? Because yeah, definitely. Is, yeah. It w urban music wasn't like it is now. Say, like, the St. Paul's Festival back then was for everybody. It was funk, hip-hop, reggae. You know, used to get played by DJs in Bristol. And everybody used to go to it. And it wasn't really um, no cutter thing. There wasn't a no cutter thing at all, you know? I used to go to clubs with my white friends, and they couldn't get in the clubs just because they were from Northwest. Mm -hmm. So that's racism, you know what I mean? So I've ex experienced racism to what... The first time I ever experienced racism is when I started doing well, which is funny. I'd never been on a plane mm. before I made a record. You know, I couldn't afford to. When I first started traveling, that's the first time I seen racism. I seen racism, stupid things, like someone shouting out a name from a car. That's ignorant, stupid stuff. But the first time I experienced racism is when I had a, a first class ticket and I was on um, British Airways. And I was flying to New York and I walked on the plane and the first class is there on the left and they're calling me there on the right, right? So I went to turn left and the stewardess said, sorry, no, you're going the wrong way, that way. And I said, why am I going the wrong way? She goes, no, economy is that way. And I said, what makes you think I'm in economy? That's just blatant racism, you know? And like things like being in a business class seat and a guy with a suit next to me and you know they want to talk straight away, like within 10 minutes, like, oh, so what do you do? And I just tell them any rubbish. I lie, I say, uh, yeah. I'm international drug dealer. I just, just <laughs> anything to mess their heads up. Yeah. So I didn't really see racism until I became successful. Because in my house, at Christmas, you've got black, you've got white, you've got Asian-looking people, you've got every colour in my family. Mm. Still on this topic of people's perceptions about race... Do you feel like you are more accepted as a black man because you are 
a performer because I have a theory that definitely yeah I know I know certain clubs I wouldn't even get into if I wasn't right. tricky and like I got friends like in London and they can't get into the clubs right if they're not with me mm. and that's black and white so definitely without a doubt it changes things mm-hmm. and you said you've been living in Berlin now for a few months how apparent or non-apparent are these kind of issues for you here? I'm curious to know. Well, I live in Northland, mm-hmm. but in the ghetto part. So they run it down there. The Turkish, the, there's some Africans, you, you know, they're from all over Lebanon. And you ain't feeling no racism down there. And I, to be honest with you, I really like Berlin because it's so, like, everything I need is in Neukland. I don't really go out to clubs much anymore. I don't really like doing much. I'm just about my music and touring. Like when I tour, I'm, I do so much. When you're at home, you just want to chill. So I'm not really seeing anything in um, Berlin. You know, I'm not really noticing anything, but there's definitely racism here. There's racism everywhere. But where I am, it's, it's all good. One of the funniest things more than racism is these hipsters, the dudes with the beards. <laughs> what is going on with that? There's a lot like, of them around. Yeah, it's like, um, <laughs> dude, you know, really are not cool. <laughs> and it's like, don't bother try to be cool. You know, you don't just be yourself. But it's like, <laughs> I see all this like baseball cap with these big beards and it's like, hipsterville. <laughs> well, I'm going to make a really awkward tangent here about kind of style and coolness. I'm going to drag you back towards Maxine Quay again. The style of that album is so specific and I was kind of rereading some of the reviews about it and they kind of described it as being very dark and dense and paranoid and dystopian and all of these like quite evocative words. How reflective or how accurate would that be for your kind of state of mind at the time when you were making that album? Well, it all depends how you look at it. Right, it's like almost like when people say it's dark, and that was the main word, right? It was dark. Yeah. Now I went out with a girl from Washington D.C. from a hardcore ghetto, like hardcore ghetto, and she found it positive, huh. and she didn't think there's nothing dark about it. She right. found it uplifting. You know, she grew up in a place where there was a murders. They were catching bodies two blocks away from the White House. You know, you got people like Rayford Edmonds and his crew killing people everywhere. She knew knew that guy. You know. So maybe a writer from England might find it dark, but this ghetto girl from Washington, she found it uplifting. So it, it all depends. I think it was just a time and a place. Like, for instance, um, Blowback is much darker than Max and Quay, much darker, because my life was a lot darker then as well. Right. I, th- I think it's a perspective. And, like, I think Blowback's a much better album than um, Max and Quay. It's some new music. There's like there's stuff on blowback just way ahead of things, you know. I think Adrian Falls is better in a lot of ways. You can see the growth, you know. I also wanted to ask you about something stylistically that I've noticed through a lot of your albums, like pretty much all of them. I love the idea of having these kind of twinned vocals, like a lot of the time male and female, but sometimes you, you'll even have male guests as well. Just the idea of kind of layering the same vocals from two different people onto the same track, like, what's the reasoning behind it? Like, what, what does it rep- represent? Well, some of it was is because, like, um, when I first met Martina and we started recording, the name, I wasn't going to call it Tricky, I wanted to call it a band called Max and Quay. Right. 
Right. That's what the name of me and Martina was going to be. It was like, we're a band. Mm -hmm. I'm going to call it Max and Quay. Because I didn't see myself as like the upfront person. Island Records was like, nah, nah, nah. You've got to call it Tricky. And I went against it. But just like Junior Palmer was like, come on. You've got to call this Tricky. This is, you know, your thing. So I said, all right, cool. But then I'm writing all those lyrics. And I'm writing the songs for Martina. But I'm not even on there. So it's almost like the first one, the Aftermath, happened as an accident. I just did a vocal. And then it was almost like, ah, that sounds like that's my thing. But then also it had to do with, if I'm going under this name Tricky, my name, which I had before the music, this was my nickname, mm -hmm. I've got to put my voice on there somewhere. And I can't sing. And I want into rapping then. Like, now on my new album now, there's me kind of like rapping. It's more like, it's like a rap album. But when I did Max and Quay... I didn't want anything to do with rap. I listened to rap and I loved hip hop and some of the music is influenced from hip hop. But I didn't want to be a rapper. I, I felt like I'd, I'd grown out of being a rapper, mm -hmm. you know? So that was the only way I could get my vocal on there. I wanted to ask you about working with Island Records and with Chris Blackwell. Uh, wonderful. Yeah, you've spoken That's, very, very fondly. God, that was that like, I feel sorry for new artists, you know? It's difficult now. If a new artist on the label, if they don't get in their first couple of singles, they don't get a hit, they usually get dropped. Mm. Chris Blackwell, Bob Marley, when he first came out, sold no records. It wasn't until his third album he started selling. U2 didn't sell. Tom Waits didn't sell. Grace Jones didn't sell straight away. He believed in supporting an artist and he believed there would be change. If the artist is good enough there would be a change Polly Harvey PJ Harvey she didn't sell no records in her first couple of albums you know you go on YouTube and some of her songs are like some of her best songs there's only like 20,000 views on there that was a time when music mattered M music doesn't matter so much anymore it's like um yes it is newspaper you know it's like um music the, the all vibe the energy of it is become a business now you know um, music is designed to steal from um children's pockets money that's why they have justin timberlake or justin bieber, bieber and justin timberlake it's all the same thing there wasn't a teen market you know the teen market was invented this has been invented by the corporate companies like if you see the specials if you go back and watch some of the specials live shows they were young men playing to young kids the corporate companies developed this teen thing because they know it's kids who buy the music spend the money bug their parents, spend their um, pocket money on it. And it's a huge market. So they had to develop a team market. And by doing that, it was like getting loads of young kids, getting someone to write their songs. It's not actually real. There's no, there's no team market as such. That's just made up. Back then, Chris, I can remember I missed an interview with Time Magazine in New York. And I went up to Chris Blackwell's house afterwards. He said, you're funny. And I said, why, why is that, Chris? And he goes... People like Bill Clinton are trying to get to do interviews with time and you miss it. He supported me in anything I wanted to do. And it, do you know, I never knew how many records I sold on Island. I never found that out until when I signed to Hollywood Records to do blowback. There was this guy, um, Robert Cavello. He's like a old school egomaniac. And when I first had the meeting with him, he's a well-known guy, Robert Cavello. And his son is a producer. His son's a good guy though. 
But Robert Cavello, the dad, he's a bit of old school and he gave me the Prince talk. He used to, he worked a um, 99.9 album, whatever. And he said to me, um, we're sat there and he's in a big chair and I'm in a little chair over yeah. there. And he said, you know, when we did the Prince album, I said to him, you need that one more track, you know? And then he come up with 1999 and I said, well, did you write that, did you? He said, no, no, but you know, he's trying to say he inspired it. Taking credit. <laughs> I just said to the dude, do you know what? I don't care about Prince. Prince is, a, is a has been. I don't give a care about that. You want to do business with me? And then he said, how many records you sold? I don't know, I just thought, do you know what? I don't have a clue. And he goes, how you don't know how many records you sold? And I said, because me and Chris never talked about it. Me and Chris Blackwell, you see each other all the time. We never discussed how many records I sold. And I don't think he cared. Because his attitude was, do you know what? You two are huge. That's support tricky to do what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, that's over. You got, you got the independent labels trying to do their thing. But music will ne never be like that again because it's, you know, it's, it's like um, big business. So you started your own label, False Idols. Yeah. In some way, are you trying to recapture that? Yeah, but it's impossible. But I can support artists, you know, like I can, I can say, like with Francesca Balmonte, she's going to go on to do another deal now. But I started off her career. I helped start her career. And the album she did with me, we released, she don't have to have a hit record. She knows I believe in her talent, mm. so I can support people and be like, look, I don't care how many. Long as we don't lose money, you don't need to make me money. Do what you want to do musically. And like, for instance, like if, if, if I've got an artist and they come to me, I could give you an opinion and say, well, I don't really think that track's good, but they don't mean say you have to listen to me because I don't like it. It doesn't mean someone else might not. you got to really believe in what you're doing. And if I've got an artist, there's no way, Chris, if I did 10 albums with Chris, there's no way I'd expect him to like everything. That is not the point of it, trying to please Chris Blackwell. He's trying to express myself. So I can give what Chris has given to me in a smaller version. That's the object of false idols. Mm -hmm. Do you still have somebody like that in your life, whether it be Chris or somebody else who is just... Horst. Horst. Yeah, he supports me like... Mm -hmm. um, Sometimes I think Horst sees things in me I don't see in myself because he's like a real support and like he wants false idols to do well and he, he thinks I should be bringing new talent and introducing people to music and um, I put out too much music but Horst supports me. Like Horst what, sometimes... What do you mean too much? Well, you know, you've got a fan base, right? There's only so much they're going to support of you if you've got this out, this out, this out. So you can't flood the market almost... And horse, I'll do something. He's like, oh my God, where are we going to put this? But instead of like saying, do you know what? You need to stop for a while. You say like, oh, well, we'll find a way of doing it. He's like um, my Chris Blackwell now. And I'm still in contact with Chris as well. Mm -hmm. In 2012, there were a bunch of live dates that you did performing the album. In Bristol. Yeah. Yeah. Was that? I think Bristol one in London. One yeah, there's one in... Um... Sundance London yeah. is a date that I remember seeing. What kind of preceded that decision to, for you and Martina to kind of come together again? And a to... tax bill. <laughs> yeah, I, I owed like, um, I think it was $200,000 or pounds to right. tax. And it was, they were getting quite heavy. But I was just like, I moved around so much. I just wasn't about paying my tax at the time. I was just like, 
you know, I'd live in New York, then live in LA and da 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 da. So I just wasn't on top of things, you know, right. and I didn't really get the all tax thing. It's like a, it's like mafia, isn't it? It's like, that's protection. It's like, why do I work and then I have to pay these people for what? You ain't, you ain't building no roads, you ain't building no hospitals. Where's, where's this money going to? So I had a big tax bill at the time. So that's the only reason I did that. Because that was, I know I could get good, quick money for that. It feels like there's been rumours swirling for years that um, perhaps you and Massive Attack will collaborate again or perhaps you've recorded material or you'd go on tour again. Like, is that something that you're willing to, to speak on a little bit? Yeah, I've, I've thought about it. But then I just don't see the point of it. I just, I just don't really, like, 3D, one of the reasons he's very successful, he's very persistent. He's been going on now at me for a long time about uh, this track we did five years ago and he wants to use it now. My manager is like, why not do it? And I'm like, and there's nothing against those guys. You know, I met up with Dee and stuff. It was funny, you know, and I actually talked to him um, last week. Mm -hmm. We were talking, it, it, was, it was funny. And we've had our um, ups and downs, but when there's been so much time in between, it's like, you forget about it, it's like, all right, mm. those days are over. So we talked about a week ago and he was just really making me laugh on the phone because he's a really funny guy. And it was almost like um, there'd been no time between us. When we talked on the phone, it was like I seen him yesterday mm -hmm. and it was kind of cool. It was like, I just, it was like, wow, we just connected straight away. You know, sometimes you ain't seen someone for a long time. He's still the same guy. I have to think, what is the point of me and them doing music? Unless it's going to be exceptional. It's almost like, what's the point? And I feel like they got their lane. They're, they're the biggest electronic band in the world, which is crazy for how long they've been around. They're huge. They don't need me. I feel like I'm doing something else now. I'm, I'm still experimenting as well. I'm still searching where I'm going. You know what I mean? It's like, I ain't trying to do another Max and Quay. I'm trying to grow all the time. So then sometimes I think, how is that going to help me grow to go back and do anything with them? And then... Um, my manager says it's a good thing. And D, I spoke to him the other day. So, so I don't know. I'm kind of actually thinking about it. I had this conversation just before I came here. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about it now. It's like, I've got to get back to my manager today to tell him whether they can use his track or not. And he really wants me to do it. Even my cousin, Michelle, who's like my sister, she's like, look, just do it. Why, why do you want to do it? Let him use the track on the album. It'd be good for you. Mm -hmm. But I don't think good for me, you know? I don't think like, because in the business end, it probably is good for me. You know, they got a huge listener. So some people, if I put something on their album, might come back to me and say, oh, all right, who's this tricky guy, you know? Mm -hmm. But then I just think, what's the point? So I, I don't know, in the moment I'm right, right in the- In limbo. Yeah, in limbo position. with it, yeah. Yeah. Do you consider yourself to be someone who's hard on themselves? I'm kind of getting that sense. When it comes to music, not in real life, I, like in real life, I'm kind of very easy going. But when it comes to music, I'm very, um, very hard on myself. Like say for instance, many years ago, Madonna wanted me to um, do some stuff for her. But I know why she wanted me to do it, it was because I was trendy. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna help you sell records. It's gonna be, in fact, do the exact opposite. If I would have done that, my career could be a lot different. So I'm hard on myself musically because I'm not going to do something. If I could get a million dollars tomorrow for someone, 
to do something I don't want to do, I'll turn down a million dollars. I'd rather go in. Some of my shows in certain countries are um, not as big as they should be. Like even in London, I can only do 3,000 people at the most. That's my own city. There's things I could have done to make that different, but I won't sacrifice my music or do something I don't want to do just to get that. So I'm pretty hard on myself musically, yeah. Speaking of live shows, I hope you won't take this question the wrong way. I feel like perhaps in the earlier part of your career, there were maybe some shows that didn't go ahead or that for various reasons, people kind of came away from those performances feeling like you weren't present or et cetera, et cetera. Like how, are you willing to talk a little bit about that, first of all, and how perhaps that's changed for you if you've got a different relationship with performing? When I first started performing, it's difficult. It's a new thing. When I was with Massive Attack, they only got a live band after me. When I did my thing, I've always had a live band. So um, after Massive Attack with the turntables, I didn't want to do that anymore. So it was hard. But then again, um, I don't care about that. You know what I mean? If people go away feeling whatever they want. But it doesn't worry me at all. I don't even think about it. I don't, I don't care what anybody thinks. First of all, it's like, say, me and my band, I always say to them, the main thing is we have a good time on stage. Don't fake it. Don't be unreal. I don't want no secondhand emotions, any of the stupid, like, you know, quivering mouths and pretending you're into it and dance moves. Be real. There's no change. People know, don't change before you get on show as well. My band know you wear what you wear in a day. Whatever you get up and put on, that's what you're wearing on stage. I don't want to go in a dress room and see you getting change for a stage it's got to be real and then put 100 percent of your soul and that's all we can do and everybody else i don't really care about it speaking of dance moves i'm sorry i have to ask you about beyonce and glastonbury was that terrifying right that was terrifying <laughs> like not because i've i've headlined a classroom before i think many years ago i think mm. i headlined it but yeah so i've done huge crowds yeah, but, it's, it's not the crowd yeah. but just the, the machine smoke, around her. Yeah. The dancers, the mm. lights. When I go on stage, it's, it's intimate. It's, it's not a show like synchronized dancing. It's intimate. Mm -hmm. There was lights, there was smoke, there was dancers. And it just wasn't my thing. It just wasn't me. So it was just like... And I didn't realise it until I walked on there. Right. So it was funny because she's such a nice girl. Such a nice girl. And I was kind of like shocked how she handles things. She's just like... I said to her, do you realise you're one of the biggest artists in the world? Because she just handles it well. I don't think I can handle it being Beyonce. You know, you, you can't go anywhere. Like, you know, after this, I can go to a bio store, buy my food, sit and have a cup of tea. If I walk down the street, maybe one or two people notice me and they don't bother me. But Beyonce couldn't walk down the street now. I wouldn't want that. So I was just impressed with her. But then when you get on stage, so I'm dealing with her because I was talking with her, you know? And then going on the stage, it's like from this girl, she's a small little girl as well, you know, really nice. And then it was just like, you walk into a machine. Yeah. And it was like, I'm not business. I give 100% of my soul, but I'm not a business-minded person. Like, uh -huh. I just kind of like, I, I just couldn't believe it. And the dancers and there's a, there's not much atmosphere on a right. bright lit up like his daylight stage. There's no, you can't lose yourself. You can't close your eyes and lose yourself and get into it. 
forget that. You have to be professional. Her show is very professional. My show is more like food. It's uh, like um, the Beyonce thing was big business. Mm. So it was just like, wow. But I got a lot of respect for how she handles it. Because mm. I, I don't know, um, I don't have the temperament to handle that. Right. And I don't think I could deal with the pressure. Mm. But at the same time, what you've just mentioned about your own kind of performances, if it's something as intense as something like voodoo or, or kind of a spiritual experience, sounds like it must be quite taxing, like quite exhausting in yeah, a way yeah, to, give, to give of yourself that much. This is why um, sometimes you could get into the drinking mm. afterwards, right? You like get on stage, you give 100% of your soul and then when you get back in the dressing room, it's just quiet. It's just like, there's nothing glamorous about touring. As soon as you're off on that stage and you go into that dressing room, dressing room is just like this. You don't get a fancy dressing room. And that's any, everybody. You know, I, I can remember watching a, a documentary about Elvis and he was doing the shows in Vegas. Yeah, he's like one of the biggest artists in the world. And they had backstage, they were filming backstage and the dressing room was just like, I was like, wow, even Elvis is in a crap dressing room. Right. Because it don't matter, some of the, best places you play, some in the dressing room, it's just a room, you know? After you give out all that energy and then you come back and it's just quiet. And then sometimes the band are packing up, you know, my drummer and everything. So I'll be in the dressing room by myself. Mm. So you've gone from a huge high, so then it's like, all right, I'm gonna have a whiskey then. You know, you're trying to, you start trying to find that um, vibe again and it's never gonna happen. Mm. So now it's like, um, I go with a trainer now. So when I do a show, I train afterwards or I train before, so I'm totally exhausted and then just back to the hotel. At what point did you start using that as a strategy to deal with that kind of like imbalance of energy from touring? Like, is that something quite recent or? I've, I've had a trainer for a while, but it started back when I knew my health wouldn't continue. You, there's no way you could do a four week tour and drink every night. Mm. Like a few years ago, I, I drink a half a bottle of whiskey in a night like on stage. And what's funny is I don't drink. You'll never find any alcohol in my house. Mm -hmm. And I'm not the sort of guy to go for a beer. I don't really socialize, I, I watch people. So I go to a cafe, get a mint tea, a peppermint tea, and I watch people. That's my like, same thing, Friday night, I'll go get a tea, sit out one side of one of the Turkish restaurants and just watch people. And then I go home, 10 o'clock, I'm listening to music. I'm in bed by 12 o'clock. My life isn't really exciting. I don't party a lot, you know? So from not drinking at home and then drinking a half a bottle of whiskey on stage, it's just like your body, there's no way your body can cope with it. And I, a few years ago, I got sick. Cause you know, alcohol is, um, it's a chemical imbalance. You keep drinking, we are chemicals and you know, it gives us an imbalance. So I was just like, um, just not great, you know? And I could feel, just like being exhausted all the time. So I just said, I had to stop it. Has that had an effect on your music, you think? Ah, not at all, because I never drink. I've never, never drank and made a song in my life, ever. Never made a song with alcohol, ever. May I ask you about weed? I smoke now and again, but not like I used to. Mm. It got to the point where like, I get somewhere, I fly somewhere and I need Someone would have to be there, and it's like you, you got, you got to have weed for me when I get there. You're, you're like a, a slave to it. I smoke now and again, and now, but I could go fly somewhere, not get it, and not worry about it. But before I had to have it, and I didn't like that being a, a slave to this. Like, you know, I used to have to tell the promoter as soon as I get off that plane, 
to have weed in the car for me for when we're driving. And I just think that's just ridiculous. There's a documentary that you did a few years ago. Um, I was watching clips of it not too long ago and you were talking about that exact thing of... Yeah, I, didn't want to be, I don't want to be a slave to it. But I still smoke again. But it's not a, a factor like it was. Yeah. Was there any fear in letting that go in terms of how it may affect you creatively? No, no. no. It's, um, being creative is in you or it ain't in you. No weed, no drug, no... You know, you say people like, uh, you know, you've had artists who've took heroin because they want that heroin sound. If you've been through certain things and if you, if you can feel, if you're sensitive, that's, that's going to come out without... To me, the more healthier you are, the better your music's going to be. Mm-hmm. The healthier you are, the more focused you are. So I think the healthier you are, the better, you know, I, I train three times a week, I'll go... So to me, like, um, that tortured artist drugged up that's all that's all rubbish does it at all bother you though that people may still perceive you as kind of a tortured artist just based on the kind of sound signatures that you've had over the years i don't care about people how they perceive me it doesn't matter to me like how someone perceives me i don't know about it because that's not part of my life there's people who follow me who don't know me so they're bound to have their own story about me Mm. you know it's like um I get some people, like I had someone on Instagram the other day saying, do you remember me from some girl from 20 years ago? It's like, what makes you think I'm going to remember you? Do you think that much of yourself, that you met me in a club twice maybe, and you're my friend? She's like, I'm your friend from back in that. No, you're not. Because all my friends I remember. I know where they live. You know, I could call them now. One guy from my, said, don't you talk to old mates anymore. I was like, listen. When I lived in Knoll, I know you from school, but we were never mates. So it's like, that's obviously his perception. He thought we were mates. I know differently. So it's not worth worrying about that stuff. When did you move away from... From Norwest? Yeah. Uh, well, I, At what age? 15. But I didn't really move away. I moved down the road. Right. I still stayed with my friends. Okay. But moving away was good, though, because I moved to an easier place. It's still... A street place but it was easier a lot easier it was closer to town and stuff but I still hung out in Norwest and Arcliffe because I grew up in um, Norwest and some of the time in the the rival area Norwest and Arcliffe guys don't really get on territorial yeah yeah but I grew up in Arcliffe as well some of the times so I grew up and um, I nearly went to Arcliffe school but I, I couldn't have got away with that because I was from Norm. I kind of didn't leave the area as such, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I moved to London that I really left Norwest. Right. And you've kind of been on the move ever since, Ever since, yeah. yeah. But I was in Norwest about four months ago. It's not changed at all. It's just not changed whatsoever. But you've changed? Yeah, yeah, I've changed. But the place is um, still the same, which is kind of beautiful in some ways and sad in the other, you know. But it's like, just it's kind of... Um, Strange going back there. Mm. I'm seeing people I haven't seen from school and stuff, and it's like, and sometimes I can't remember them. Yeah. You know? Does it feel like home when you're back there? Nah, it's, it's too rough for me. I said to my auntie, I don't, I don't know how I survived there. It's a rough place. You know, it ain't the Bronx, but it's, it's, it's a rough, rough place. I think I'm just too mellow for that. You know, you've got to be kind of tough in a way to be there. <clears throat> mentally tough, 
mm. and physically tough. That's just not me, you know? So you think it was luck that got you through? No, I was part of it then. I was a mm. Norwester. Uh-huh. There's young guys who don't know me there. My family used to run that place. Like, Bristol. My family used to run Bristol. My uncles, they ran that there. That was, there's no doubt about it. If you ask who my uncles were, they were the biggest things in Bristol. My family, the golfers, they were very well known. I was always known as a golfery. And this is where all my f- best friends were. So I had no problems. But going back now, people don't know me. To them, I'm a stranger. So, you know, I, I've had, um, you know, guys test me and stuff. Like when I'm there, I'm testing me. But usually I've got a few people with me, you know what I mean? Some guys you don't know I am and they're thinking, who's this guy? Why is he? Because when you're not from Norwest, you go there, people know you're a stranger straight away. They know you're not from there. Mm-hmm. You could go on the green there. There's a green called Melvin Square. Stand there and then cars will start driving past, seeing who you are. If you're like with a group of people, people will start coming out. I did filming up there a few years ago, filming on the grass, like uh, for this kind of uh, internet thing showing where I'm come from. Cars came round, people looking. Then it was someone recognised me, but until then there could have been a problem. And then they said, oh, no, that's um, the Goffrey. And then it was all right. That sounds fairly nerve-wracking to be kind of moving through a space or moving through your community and feeling like you're kind of being watched and evaluated and you need to kind of be vouched for to... Well, when you're, when you're well-known as well, you become... Um, like, for instance, like Mike Tyson. Who would want to fight Mike Tyson? People will test him Mike Tyson because he's Mike Tyson. Right. If you've done okay for yourself, you become a target. It's just, it's just natural. I don't have security, but I've got friends who live that life. I've got cousins, I've got uncles, I've got nephews. So if I'm going to a certain place, I'll go with certain people who know, like... Like my uncle, I've been out with my uncle. My uncle's knocked people out in the club, straight in the club, for testing us. That's not my life. I, I've moved away from there. But if you do want some of that, though, we, you know, I'm not an idiot, and I've got people around me. So certain places, you just got to go. Certain places, you've got to go with certain people if you want to go to those certain places or lock yourself off and just go to the high-end places and stuff like that. So is it a... I don't know, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. Is it something of a relief to be able to do the things that you mentioned before about being in Berlin, being able to go and sit in a cafe quietly and just observe? To be too famous, um, the talent thing is not how we see it. It's talented. It's a great thing. In Latin, it means heavy burden. With talent, sometimes comes fame, and fame um, causes mental illness. Look how many famous people are sick on drugs or they've got problems like um, Kanye West, for instance. You can't tell me he's a well man. You love yourself that much. There's got to be something wrong with you. And no disrespect for, to him at all. I've never met the guy. But saying, you know, they'll be writing about me and when I'm gone and like if, if it was back in the days, I'd be one of the 12 disciples. Like, what are you talking? It's like, there's something wrong with you. And it's fame. Fame strokes the ego and just blows things out of all context and it takes you away from real life i don't want to end up like Kanye west like his life is a movie you know it's like um only fame would make you start thinking like that so um it's something i've always been wary of and it's like uh, i'm not saying it's 
anything wrong with it if someone wants to be famous. But like um, being a doctor, or being a lawyer, or being a singer, that's an occupation. Being famous is like some people just want to be famous. Mm. You don't know nothing about fame. Why would you want to be famous? What does it, what, you've got to be really insecure to want to be famous. I can understand wanting money or wanting success, but wanting fame, I don't get that. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you one last thing because it seems like a lot of the albums, specifically the album titles of albums that you've released previously have spoken directly to either your life as we spoke about Maxine Quay and Adrian Thors and Noel Westboy, et cetera, et cetera. What is Skilled Mechanics going to be saying about you? Skilled Mechanics is a rap album. It's the first album where it's mostly me on the vocals. People for many years have been saying, would I ever do an album which is prominently me mm. doing the vocals? But tricky, I, I like writing for females. It's like you, you give a female your words and they change them. It changes when they come out of their mouth when it's recorded. So Skill Mechanics is like, um, even though it's not a hip-hop album, but there's it's, it's some rap on there and there's some stuff like, um, some which is really weird, there's a song called Boy. It could have been written... 20 years ago about um, I met my dad in, in the phone book I, I found him in a phone book I'd seen my dad when I was young but I was too young to remember him and then I was looking for a phone book in my auntie's house I always used to look for the phone book looking for my last name I think subconsciously that's probably looking for identity mm. then I found my last name which is an unusual last name so I said to my auntie who's this with my name and she goes it's your dad why don't you call him so I called him and um, when I used to go and see him, he used to forget my name and call me boy. And that's the, the song starts off. Um, when I was 12, I found my dad, his name was Roy. He forget my name and call me boy. And it goes on about my mum's suicide and then me and Whitley hustling and getting up to stuff. And it's like a true story, a true, true story. Some of it is more personal lyrics than on any of my albums. Like boy is more personal which is funny because it's more of a rap song, but it's um, more personal than anything called Max and Quay. And it's like, it's, it's, my, it's my story and there's nothing on that song which isn't real. About my uncle being murdered and hearing my nan scream because the police came to the house. Because the police used to raid my house, you know, they used to come looking for stuff and, you know, hassle me sometimes because I was known for certain things. So I thought they were coming from me. But when you see a police woman and a police man, you know that's bad news because that's to give right. you some serious bad news. They ain't coming to arrest you like that, you know? They usually come with a van. Or... I seen them out the window and they said my nan's name. She said, are you da 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 Goffrey? She said, yeah. She goes, your son has been murdered. And my nan screamed like, but not like a scream I've ever heard before. It was, um, it was, it was I've never heard a scream like that. This was, a, it was like a, more like an owl. I pretend I was asleep and my nan's a strong woman. Next day I was going to school and she got me up for school, cooked me and my sister's breakfast and I pretend it didn't happen because I didn't want to torture her about it and she didn't mention a word. She didn't say anything, nothing at all. She got us ready for school, she sent us off. When we got back she made our tea. You know, I went out with my friends and never said a word and just got on with it. She's a very strong lady. And it's like, um, I've had two murders in my family. Two murders, you know, my cousin was shot in the back of his head and uh, my uncle was stabbed to death. It's a song, every word in this song is just actual fact. And that's indicative of the album? That kind of really Yeah, it's, it's like... Um, honest... It's an album I could have done if... When I left Massive Attack, if I was still into rap, 
it's the album I would have done instead of Max and Quaid, probably. If I wouldn't have found Martina, almost. Like, like when I did Max and Quaid, I didn't want to rap anymore. I just was not into... And I've never really rapped. It was more spoken word. But I didn't really even want to do that. Skill mechanics, it's not even spoken word. It's loud in your face. It's the loudest I've ever... I always put myself back in the mix. Mm. This is the loudest you've ever heard me. And it's like... Um, one of the few songs you probably understand every word I'm saying, because a lot of the times you can't understand some of the things I'm saying. Yeah. So it's like really in your face. At 12 I met my dad, his name was Roy. He forget my name and call me boy. I met a girl, I jumped for joy. Stealing cars and play with toys. No time to grow, cause my mother go to the other side. She chose suicide. But I can't complain, though I miss her such Got some sisters, but we don't stay in touch I dream I'm drowning, asthma, I can't breathe Slip into the darkness, but I don't leave I dream I'm drowning, asthma, I can't breathe Slip into the darkness, but I don't leave Sixteen left my school, halfway criminal Smoke weed in council flats, until my lungs collapse My uncle's urban muscle, me and Whitby hustle Keep the dream alive, and try to sign with Russell And get a record deal, but Whitby's way too real My nana lost my mum, then she lost her son Those memories ripe, killed my uncle Mike Heard my nana scream, no it's not a dream I dream I'm drowning, 